Thank you, Clinton. Thank you, uh, worship team, uh, for leading us in worship today. So grateful to be able to, to have this time to worship with all of you here, everybody joining us online as we uh, wrap up this series that we are in called Building Blocks. We're talking about the basic truths that build the foundations of what we know about ourselves, what we know about God, what we know about life. And we started this series talking about absolute truth. How do we know that there is a, a line of what is true and what is not? And we talked about creation, uh, looking around us and seeing the evidence of a God who has brought everything into being. Last week, we talked uh, about good and evil. How do we understand good and evil? And what is God up to in the world? If you missed any of those uh, messages, I encourage you to go to our website and be brought up to date. Uh, check out those. But today we're talking about probably the most important uh, building block of all. And it is the historical event of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, who said, I'm going to give my life and be raised three days later. And then he pulled it off. One of the greatest, probably the greatest event of all history. You think about it, there are moments in life, moments in history that are so magnificent, so important. Uh, there, there's such a shift in what is happening that it redefines everything that has happened up to that point and it redefines how you experience everything moving forward. Most of the time, when we walk through life and we walk through the experiences that we have, we forget, we don't remember those uh, shifting moments of history that have changed everything. I thought about a few that are shaping the way that we experience life today. One of the things I thought about uh, that probably never crosses your mind, in 1796, uh, we had the first vaccine developed, a vaccine for smallpox. How drastically is that shaping uh, how we think about medicine, how we think about uh, community life together and the safety of that uh, today, of all the vaccines that have been developed over the life. Uh, much closer to us today, 1989, uh, many of you remember that event, the fall of the Berlin Wall. This symbol in, in Europe that was about division and about oppression. And so many of us, we, we saw that wall come down and we had a hope of what life could look like. How much does that shape the way we think today? 2003, uh, the first development, the launch of MySpace. Now for all of you who are watching or you're here and you're like, what in the world is MySpace? One year later, 2004, the launch of Facebook that has drastically changed the way we connect with each other, whether you're on Facebook or Snapchat or Twitter or whatever, Instagram, that that began to shift and change the way we think about how we connect with other people. A few years later, 2007, uh, the launch of the very first iPhone. Now, whether you're an Android or you're Samsung or iPhone, uh, it, our life is drastically shaped by this little device that so many of us carry around. You know, who would have thought 20, 30, 40 years ago that we'd be carrying around a computer with us in our pocket everywhere that we go? How drastically have these events shaped and changed everything that happened up to that point and everything that happens moving forward? But I wanna to suggest to you 
that there is an event in history, not just because I'm a Christian, but if you look at the way history and our experience of life together has been shaped, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, hands down, has been a greater impact than the sum of all the events that we could lift up today. I mean, you think about it, even the things that we value and we hold as virtuous, whether or not you're a Christian, have been shaped and defined by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Unless you lived in the tribe of Israel, this nation of Israel, there are virtues that that were not upheld at the same standard to the same scope throughout the world. Things like mercy, things like humility. Humility was not a virtue in the first century Roman world. Uh, Things like compassion, Uh, Things like rights for people who cannot fight for rights for themselves. As we move through history and we fought for rights of women and children and, and groups that were not able to stand up for themselves, so much of that was driven because 2,000 years ago, there was a man named Jesus who said, you do not live for yourself, but you live for others. I come not to be served, but to serve and to lay my life down for you. Even those things we hold virtuous or the organizations that shape our culture, things like hospitals and schools and universities and all the nonprofits and aid groups, not just in our country, but all over the world likely would not look like what they look like today without a man named Jesus who launched a worldwide never ending movement called Christianity. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is an event that has shaped the world more than all other events combined. So there's two questions that I think all of us here, everybody watching online, whether or not you profess to be a Christian or not, there are two questions that every single human being should wrestle with in life. Number one, how do I know that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead? And number two, if he did, then what does that mean for me? Now, Paul, in the first century, just a few years after the the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, wrote to the churches around the known world answering questions like this. And there's one place in Scripture in particular that I'm going to take us to today that answers both of those questions. How do I know that Jesus rose from the dead? And if he did, what does that mean for us? So we're going to look together in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in the first century. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to start, we're going to read verses 3 through 8, and then we're going to jump ahead to verse 20 and read through 22. Uh, You can turn in your Bibles or you can follow along on the screen. Verse 3, Paul says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. And jump ahead to verse 20. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. You see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone died because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. All right, let's wrestle with this first question. How do I know that Jesus has been risen from the dead? And Paul answers this question for us in verses 3 through 8. And he gives us two reasons to hold on to. The first reason Paul says, how do I know that Jesus has risen from the dead? First, because there were witnesses who saw exactly what happened. And then he goes through the list of those. If you go back and, and just, you can underline in those in your Bible, verses three through eight. He says, uh, the disciples saw it. Then he says, there were 500 who saw Jesus, the risen Jesus, after he was crucified, after he was placed in the tomb, three days later. Then there were 500 people who saw Jesus up and walking around. And then finally he says, and last of all, as though I'd been born at the wrong time, I myself saw the risen Jesus. Now there's an implied reason here that I'm going to touch on as well that Paul doesn't necessarily state. But we know in the first century there were already these gospel accounts, these Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as we know them, that were already circulating through the church as a witness of what people had seen in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. We'll just take them one by one. We have the disciples, the 12 men who had followed Jesus day in and day out, who were firsthand witnesses of the resurrection, the risen Jesus. I think about Thomas and his encounter with Jesus. And he says, unless I put my hands in the holes of your, your hands, unless I can touch the side where you were speared and Jesus shows up and he says, here I am, Thomas. And he was able to encounter physically the risen Jesus, or, or the account where the, the disciples actually had breakfast with Jesus on the shore. A physical account. Now think about these disciples following the, the resurrection of Jesus, going all over the known world, telling people about what they had seen. And what do they get in return? They get threats. Uh, they're often beaten. They were arrested. And we believe that most of them, if not all of them, died because they continued to tell people that Jesus had risen again, yet not once did they back down or question whether or not they would continue to share this news. Or think about the 500, that you had at least 500 people walking around at once, and, and Paul is intentional to say, most of these people are still alive. And, and what he's really saying is, listen, if you're not sure about what I have to say, go ask one of them. Because they're still walking around and they saw it with their own eyes, witnesses that Jesus has risen from the dead. Or think about Paul, this man who was the Pharisee of Pharisees, he tells us. That he was the righteous of all righteous, even to the point that he was persecuting these people of the way, these people who said, I will follow Jesus. He was throwing them in prison. He, he was uh, vying for them to be uh, persecuted to the highest extent. And then he has some kind of encounter. And he tells us that he has encountered the risen Jesus that sent him on a 180 degree turn. 
that he was no longer persecuting, but in fact, he was telling people that this Jesus, who is the Son of God, is the anointed one or the Christ or the Messiah, and he has come to do for us what we could not do, and he is risen from the dead, that if we trust in him, have faith in him, that we can have eternal life with God forever. And Paul, like the disciples, was threatened, he was beaten, he was arrested, and tradition tells us that he gave his life telling other people about the good news that Jesus had risen from the dead. Or take the, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these uh, testimonies of the life and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus that were circulating around the first century and have carried on to us today. Reliable witnesses of what Jesus had done. Now you might ask, well, how do I know that they're reliable? Um, there's a long list that we could go through. I'll give you just a couple. Uh, one of the reasons that we can hold on to these four gospels as reliable accounts is because the people who wrote them, unlike other narratives of their day, did not make themselves a heroic figure in the story. You read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the ones who are writing it were often telling us about how much they got it wrong and how they struggled to trust in Jesus and how they continued to mess up and how Jesus had to correct them time and time again. If I'm writing a story, I'm probably not gonna put all of my dirty laundry in the story as well, but they did. Or I think about the historical figures Political leaders, religious leaders, uh, other leaders in the community that are included in the witness. And this was, again, circulating uh, firsthand from church to church, from community to community, while these historic people were still alive. All it would have taken is just for one of them to stand up and say, no, 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 that's not the way it happened. But from what we know in history, no one ever stood up. No one ever raised their hand because the stories that we have received today are true and reliable witnesses. Uh, another reason is because we have very, very early versions of the original text. The original, the first time that Matthew was written or Mark was written or Luke or John was written, very early after that, We've got copies of those, those witnesses that have carried on to today as close as within 50 years of those early writings. Now you might say, well, 50 years is a long time. But as we have standards of what we can trust in history, 50 years is just a blip. Earlier than the Iliad, earlier than the Odyssey, earlier than other Greek manuscripts that we don't question one tiny little bit about the, the accuracy of those documents. Another reason is because from copy to copy to copy that has come down to us over the years, very little, if any, differences between copies. And we could go on and on and on about the reliability of these witnesses, whether it's the disciples or the 500 or Paul or the gospels, but we have this reliable witness of truth. The evidence is out there. I encourage you to go and, and search and be encouraged or, or find the truth. But if you don't want to just take their word for it, well, you could say, well, they were following Jesus. Of course, they wrote this. What about the people who didn't follow Jesus? Well, a second reason that we can trust is because there were actually other accounts of people who did not follow Jesus, who, who did not give allegiance to Jesus, who verified the events around his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection. One of those was a guy named Josephus, a Jewish historian 
who was not a follower of Jesus, who verified the events that Scripture tells us. Let me read you one excerpt from uh, something Josephus wrote in a book called Antiquities, uh, a historical document of what happened in the first century. He wrote this. Now there was a, about this time, Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. Here's Josephus, first century historian uh, of such renown and reliability that the political leaders of the day often turned to him to document the things that were happening. And he verifies point by point by point that Jesus lived, that Jesus taught, that Jesus did miracles, that Jesus gave his life. And three days later, Jesus appeared to his followers, risen and alive again. Joseph is writing this not because he followed Jesus or, or gave his allegiance to him or, or wanted to convince others, but as a historical reality. If you don't want to take Josephus, there were others. Uh, one of such was another Roman historian, a guy named Tacitus. And Tacitus wrote in his historical documents of what happened in the first century, uh, some things that also verified what we know about the resurrection of Jesus. He wrote this in one excerpt. But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor, and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero, who was the emperor of Rome, fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Uh, things in Rome were falling apart. There was a great fire. Uh, Nero wanted to blame the Christians for the things that were happening. And so he began to not only put blame, but put, but put punishment on these Christ followers. That's what Tacitus is talking about. It goes on, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and became popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pledged guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city or burning the city, as of hatred against mankind, mockery, of every sort was added to their deaths. 
Now, clearly Tacitus is, is not vying for us to put our trust in Jesus and, and join this movement of Christians, but he's documenting the events around the first century of what happened with the life, the death, the resurrection, and most importantly, what happened after the resurrection of Jesus, that Christians continued to profess, I saw Jesus dead and then he was alive. He is risen from the dead. Everything that he said was going to happen has happened. And it did not matter what Rome threw at them. We will punish you. We will persecute you. We will, we will uh, economically hurt you. We will even kill you and not only kill you, but we will throw every mockery at your death that we possibly can. And yet the Christians did not pull back. As a matter of fact, the movement began to grow and grow and grow and multiply. And what seems to me to be most important if Rome was so concerned about this movement of people called Christians, all they had to do at any moment was go to the tomb, get the body of Jesus, and parade him all over the empire, and yet they could not. Why? Because there was no body. The tomb was empty. They could not stop the movement. Now, evidence after a piece of evidence, after a piece of evidence adds up that the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus is reliable and true. So the question that we have to face next is, well, if this is true, then what do I do with this? And Paul answers that question for us as well. If you look at those last few verses we read, 20 through 22 of chapter 15, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun, begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. What is at stake? What does it mean for us that if I will trust and submit to Jesus who is not dead, but he is alive and he is reigning, he is Lord of lords and King of kings, he is ruler over all things. If I will submit to him and follow him, Paul says, I will have new life that when I leave this earth, when you put my body six feet under and, and you believe that my body is gone and I'm dead, I am still alive and I'm with Jesus and I'm living for eternity that this life is not the end because I put my trust in him, I will be with God forever. That's what Paul says is at stake for us. Now, if we break this down a little bit, there's some truths that we need to wrap our minds around. One of those is that heaven and hell are real. Now, in our culture, and our world, it's not popular to talk about heaven and hell, but heaven and hell are reality of the world that we live in. Jesus talks about heaven and hell. In his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, at least twice in that discourse, he talks about the dangers of hell. In Matthew 25, he actually teaches through a parable, the sheep and the goats. And he talks about the, the reality that some, many, will go to hell in a separation from the glory of God, from the presence of God, and, and a few will come into the kingdom of God because they put their trust in the Son of God and the trust of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. 
In Luke 23, as Jesus is being crucified, he turns to the man next to him on the cross who puts his trust and his faith in Jesus. He says, remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. And do you remember his response to him in Luke 23? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus talks about the reality of heaven and hell. This is not to scare us. It's not to get us worried, but it's for us to realize the truth that we need to reckon with. We need to wrestle with that there is an eternity at stake, that this world, what we see, what we experience is not all that there is, but there's so much more. And so where does my, my allegiance, where does my trust lie? And it's not just with what I think I believe or what I say I believe, but what do I show I believe? What are the things that I live my life for? Are, is it for things that are today of temporary pleasure and comfort and money and, and power and fame and, and all those things? Or do I live for eternal things? Heaven and hell are real. Another implication for us that we need to wrestle with is that salvation comes by trusting Jesus. That this, this thing that is hoarding over us, living over us like a dark cloud, this power of sin that keeps us from living the life that we want to live. It keeps us from experiencing the good things that we want to experience, this brokenness that we experience. The only way to be saved from that, the only way to be saved from eternal death is by trusting and submitting to Jesus. Now, we know that as, as church people, everybody watching online who normally in a normal season of life, you would be in a church somewhere. We, we know that. We believe that, but do we really rest in it? Because as I look around the world, and the temptation for me is not to be saved by trust, but to be saved by behavior. Well, I'll be a good person, you know, and I know in my mind that I don't ever earn my way into heaven, but I sure spend a lot of time and effort trying to do it. And I spend a lot of time in shame and guilt. Somebody, anybody experienced that? Shame and guilt every time I mess up that, that I, something's wrong, I, I'm letting God down. And we live by the gospel of behavior modification instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he came and he took the punishment that I could not take and he did what I could not do in rising from the dead. That he gives forgiveness and new life and hope, not through behavior, but through faith and through trust that will lead itself to a changed life, but is rooted in my trust in God. The only way to, to salvation is by trusting Jesus. A third implication for us is my allegiance belongs to Jesus. That my thoughts, my actions, my decisions, everything I do in this life should have one end and one end only. And that is to make much of Jesus. To bring him glory, to bring him attention, not to put me in the spotlight, not to make my life better, but that I am totally allegiant to bringing glory and attention and honor to God through his son, Jesus Christ. But if I were to take an honest assessment of my life, so much of what I think and say and do is not about that, but it's to bring me attention and to bring me comfort and to bring me pleasure and to bring me ease in my life. And sometimes I just need to lean in with confession and say, God, I, I, need, I need some revival in my life to, to make much of you. That there are things in my life, God, that I've made an unfit master that have taken the place of you. And you know what happens? When you take a temporary thing and you make it a master over something that is eternal, because you are eternal, do you know that? 
You weren't made for just now. You were made for forever. And we take temporary things and put them over a, an eternal soul. We make them masters. They are unfit. They, they bring weight. They bring shame. They bring limitation. They bring uh, uh, doubt. They bring fear. Oh my goodness, how many of us are living in fear right now? Because there's unfit masters, but my allegiance belongs to Jesus alone. And then finally, and this might be the hardest for us to wrestle with, is that the church belongs to Jesus. If Jesus really rose from the dead and he sits at the right hand of God, that means he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the ruler of all things. He is the creator of everything. He is the savior. He brings the glory of God. It is about Jesus, not about me. This is not my church. It's not Pastor Bill's church. It's not your church. It's not America's church. It is nobody's church but Jesus Christ. That means that this church and every church does not exist. And I don't say this to shame you or guilt you. I'm preaching this to me. The church does not exist to cater to you or do what you want or meet your needs. As a matter of fact, the church is not a place that you go to or a, an organization that you belong to. The church is a worldwide, never-ending movement of people joined together by the Spirit of God for the mission of God to make Jesus known in a broken and hurting world. And Jesus is the head. He is the center. He is the power. He is the heartbeat. And it is all for him, not for you and not for me. And we need to wrestle with that reality. That means that every one of us who are gathered to here, mask or no mask, hand sanitation or not, six feet apart or not, everybody, one of us joining in online, we, we've got to make sure that we are living our lives to make much of Jesus and not to make my life feel better. Now, even if we've got to, to stay in our homes for lots of good reasons, and, and I know that we're making wise decisions about that, that we make sure that we're not just watching, but we're worshiping. That we're not just receiving, but we're living on mission. That we're finding a way to carry the mission of God through the church of God, that, that, that God has called us to, to make much of Jesus in the world. We carry that mission out into the world wherever we can find ourselves, leveraging everything that we can leverage to tell people about the, the great things that Jesus has done, that Jesus is risen. So whether you're here or you're at home, it's not about being filled up by me or the music or anything else we do, but it's about being filled with the Spirit of God and being the church of God. Not coming to church, but being the church. And living that out because it is centered on no one else but Jesus. And that's a hard thing for us to wrestle with. And I think maybe what's most appropriate for us is that as we leave today or we go on with the rest of our day is maybe just our next step needs to be confession. Not for guilt, but for change. I say, God, I gotta confess that my approach to this life and church and everything has been centered on me, fill me, give me, help me, do for me. Where God, if it's true that Jesus really rose from the dead, then none of those things fit. That my life and church and everything else should be about serve you, worship you, honor you, follow you, obey you, submit to you. And so God, I confess that my heart is turned upside down 
And I need healing. I need redemption. I need hope. I need correction. I need power. I need mercy. And the great news is, God, that you are willing and ready and able and excited to give all those things. Will we receive that? Will we trust that? Last week, Pastor Bill lifted up the greatest truth of all. God wins. God wins. Jesus is risen. The tomb is empty. In verse 20, Paul says, indeed, Christ has been risen from the dead. The verb there, it literally means that he has been risen and continues to be risen. In other words, this is not just a historical event of yesterday, of 2,000 years ago, but it's an event of today that Jesus continues to be risen. And what Jesus desires for you and for me is not that we would agree that something happened 2,000 years ago, but we would surrender to the resurrection Jesus wants to bring in me today. The struggle for the Corinthians was not that, that Jesus had risen from the dead, but that they would rise from the dead and that it had anything to do with their life. And that just, I think, resonates with us so much in the world we live in. I might agree that Jesus rose from the dead, but what does he want to do in me today? How does he want me to surrender today? What new life does he want to breathe in me today? And so if you're here or you're watching online, here's what I desire for all of us. If you are trusting and following, be encouraged. Your faith is well-founded. It has a foundation of truth. If you believe, but you're not really sure about what Jesus wants to do in you today, I just wanna encourage you to, to move from belief to faith, from, tr- from knowing to trusting and submitting to God and say, God, I'm yours because this is true. If you're not sure about the place of Jesus in your life, I just wanna encourage you to investigate because I have found that if you will search for truth, you will find truth. The evidence is there, it, it is reasonable, it is reliable. And I believe that God wants to do some, something brand new in us today. But will we receive it? So I'm going to pray for us that the evidence will move to belief and belief will move to trust and trust will move to understanding and understanding will move to power and power will move to new life in every part of our life. Prayer for me, prayer for you. So if you'll stand, let's pray together. And I wanna encourage all of us here, all of us at home, as I pray, lift up your own prayers. If you need to be encouraged, pray for encouragement. If you need to pray for faith, pray for faith. The Holy Spirit will give that. If you're not sure about Jesus, pray for truth. If God is stirring in your heart right now to, to make Jesus the center of your life, you can pray right now, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you. I'm desperate for you. I cannot do this life on my own. I can never measure up to the standard of your holiness, your goodness. But thank God you did for me what I cannot do. And I need Jesus in my life. Forgive me of my sin. Set me free from the weight of it. Give me new life. Fill me with your spirit. And bring me into your home, Lord, into your presence, into your eternity forever. He is faithful to forgive and give you new life. So as I pray, you can pray. If you want to come to these altars, you can do that as well. If you want to kneel at home or kneel where you are, you can do that. But let's go to the Lord. Oh, Father, we love you. We praise you. 
We celebrate you and we thank you for sending the bridge, God, through your son, Jesus, to take on our sin, to take it to the tomb, to rise back to life. Thank you that it is historical and reliable. The witnesses that we have, you've given us so that we can know, God, so that we can trust. And you've given us your Holy Spirit, Lord, to change us and to breathe life into us and to send us on mission. Forgive us, God, of the way that we've minimized your church as a place to go to or an organization to belong to instead of the living, breathing body of Christ living on mission. Forgive us, Lord. Change our hearts and our minds. God, for all of us who are, who are searching and wondering and we're doubting and we're not sure about where you are, God, lead us to the truth and give us an open heart, open mind to, to, to reconcile what's happened in history. Encourage us, Lord, as we go on that journey. And God, I just pray through all of it that you'll be lifted up, you'll be glorified, that we'll join with all of creation, Philippians chapter two says, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We wanna join with that, that cry this morning because you are worthy, Lord. We want you to receive the glory. God, we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name and the power of your Holy Spirit that you give to us. Amen.